In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory Glory be to the the Father, Father, and and to the the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as as it was in the beginning, beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. This upcoming Sunday is the second to last Sunday in the church year, which means that we continue, gospel reading-wise, the three parables that Jesus tells regarding the end of times. Last week was the parable of the ten virgins. This week is the parable of the talents. And then the following week, or the culmination of the church year, happens with the parable of the sheep and the goats and the final judgment. This Sunday, however, we are also very excited to be able to have a guest preacher with us, a missionary from Wisconsin who serves in Central Asia. And he will be preaching both Sunday services and spending time with the education hour in between the services. And... Uh, using the text of the the talents, being able to share more about what he does and how he is able to serve the church in the places where he has been sent. And so we encourage everybody, if you're able to participate, to come this Sunday, but also to note that there will not be a live stream of the Sunday services. This live stream will come out Monday evening and will be the Monday evening service that is streamed um, in order to be able to make some accommodations for what's happening on Sunday. But just a reminder that this Sunday we will have the missionary with us and uh, we encourage everybody to come and be able to hear his his story and what he is doing in order to serve the spread of the gospel around the world. The Old Testament reading for this Sunday is from Zephaniah, not a book that we spend a lot of time with. This may be the only time we get a reading from Zephaniah. I didn't double-check that, but... We certainly don't get more than two uh, readings as Zephaniah in the course of the the three-year cycle because it is part of the Minor Prophets, uh, which means not that it is an unimportant book when we say Minor Prophets, but that it is a short book. So we have the, the big prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then there's this collection of 12 books called the Minor Prophets because of the length of the text. Zephaniah falls into that. It's the same one that includes, or the same collection that includes Jonah, Amos, Micah, and other books of that nature. Zephaniah writes his text. Uh, he lives somewhere between 640 and 609 BC, living at the same time as Jeremiah under King Josiah, who is um, recognized for bringing a lot of reforms into Israel, kind of recognized as a one of the good kings, because there's a whole series of bad kings that reign over Israel and Josiah. While not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and and is not able to return Israel to its former glory as they had experienced under King David and King Solomon, Josiah is a faithful king and does what he can to be able to restore faithfulness in Israel. So there's a lot of overlap between Zephaniah and Jeremiah when it comes to content and imagery. And the characteristic of Zephaniah is the focus that he gives to Christ as a way to give comfort to God's people so that the people do not fall into despair. Earlier this week, I was speaking with a group of pastors and we were talking about the overlap that exists in the prophets. And 
I don't know why I have never kind of pictured this, but I've always imagined the prophets kind of doing their work a lot on their own, kind of isolated. And somebody observed, well, don't you suppose that perhaps they use similar imagery because they went to their version of pastor's conferences? Well, I was going to ask that question. If they overlapped in dates, is it, how likely is it that they knew each other? They probably did. They're working in the same area. They're working with the same group of people and sharing the same information. And as faithful followers of Yahweh would have interacted with each other for mutual companionship and support. Uh, and so they probably did know one another and would have been talking about these things together and encouraged one another in what they were doing. Well, not knowing, not knowing these books particularly well, um, is it, does it function kind of like the Gospels do, where there's, there's maybe gaps in one that aren't in the other, and they kind of mutually fill each other in, maybe even in terms of the historical record? I, I think that that is an imperfect but a good parallel or good okay. example. Um, they're not going to be exactly the same in that the parables, or not the parables, the Gospels are recounting the same story of Christ's life. The prophets are speaking about the context and the, the situation that Israel finds itself in. So instead of functioning as a narrative that records historical events, the prophets are serving as sermons that are commenting on those events. And so they're similar in the, in, to the Gospels in the sense that they're covering the same time period and same information. They're different in that probably a better New Testament parable, parallel of what they are would be Paul's letters, where he's engaging with issues that exist in their context. Um, now, the other overlap that we do get is these time frames that some of the prophets are working in are covered in other books. And so first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, there's overlap there recording the history. The prophets fit into that history that is recorded in this, those historical books. We sometimes lose that sense of timeline because of how the Bible is arranged. And so this is a little bit off topic for where I was planning on going today, but it's worth noting that the way our Bible is arranged is not chronological, the way that the Western mind would like to have it arranged. It is arranged by type of writing. And so we get the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, often called the Torah. They're the books that Moses writes. Then we get the historical books, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. These are all historical books. Esther and Ruth fall into this category. They are narrating the account of the rise and fall of Israel as a nation state. Then we have what are called the writings, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs. These are all poetry. And they are written at the same time as the historical books are recording the history. King David writes a lot of the Psalms, for example. And then after that, we have the work of the prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, the 12 books that I mentioned at the beginning. And so they're arranged not by chronology, but by type of writing. And that can be 
a little bit off-putting for us in our Western mind, where we would rather have them arranged by when do they occur. And even the New Testament suffers from a little bit of that same challenge. We have the Gospels and Acts, which are narrative tellings of Christ's life and the starting of the church. Then we have Paul's letters, which are not arranged by year, but by length. And then the epistles written by John and the other writers, and finally ending with Revelation. And so even the, the New Testament is not chronological. There are some editions of the Bible that you can purchase for devotional use where they take all of this and rearrange it chronologically so that you can read it cover to cover and follow the chronology of the events as opposed to sticking with one author and one style of writing for long periods of time. So if that's something that's interesting to you, um, you can find those. I, I don't remember off the top of my head what they are called, but I'm sure if you go to Amazon and type in chronological Bible, it will come up with um, a book, the Bible that's written as a book that you read chronologically. Otherwise, you can also go online and type in chronological reading plans, and it will spit out a a reading plan to be able to go through the Bible in chronological order, but using the Bible that you already have. It'll tell you today, go to First Kings chapter five, and also read, and then it'll have the other things that are connected to that. Uh, you attributed that to just our Western way of looking at things, but I, I have to think too that part of the equation would be that because a lot of the scriptures, a lot of the, the way that people knew the scriptures was by oral tradition. Right. They carried it around in their heads. They didn't have scrolls. It was impractical. It was it was not affordable for one thing for mm -hmm. them to carry carry the scrolls. So they carried it around in their heads. So they sorted this all. They had this all organized right. chronologically in their heads. They didn't need it in some kind of a physical book type of form that we're we're kind of wedded to. So that that probably factors into it as well. Right and. Uh, the oral tradition is certainly how we get the books of Moses. So Genesis, why, why is it that you can memorize the days of creation? Because it was written to be memorized. It was a story that was told. And so there's a lot of repetition that lends itself to that. Why can you memorize a psalm easier than you can 1 Kings chapter 6? Well, because psalms are poetry, which is meant to be sung, meant to be memorized, 1 Kings chapter 6, which I don't even know what it is. I just picked that out of thin air. So if you go looking at it to see why am I picking on that chapter, there's no particular reason for it. Um, that is meant to be a historical account. So it would be like trying to memorize the, a history book that you read um, or even being able to memorize the presidents in order. Can you do it? Yes. Is it the easiest thing to memorize? Eh, there's easier things to memorize because the listing of the presidents is just a list of names. So that is a long way around for us to get into Zephaniah today. Uh, but that's okay. It's, it's good information, kind of good things to ponder. And so we are in Zephaniah chapter 1, and we're reading verses 7 through 16, which is written in a poetic form. And so if you a look at it inside the text of, of your Bible. It is written in versification with stanzas, and it looks more like a poem than it does a narrative, and that's because 
it does function more as poetry in that way. So, Paul, why don't we just read the whole chunk, 7 through 16. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Thank you. So because this is poetry, we see a lot of parallelism that happens within it. So as we look at this today, we're going to see things that are held in tension against each other to try and highlight the point that the prophet is trying to make. But we begin at the beginning. Be silent before the Lord God. Why begin with the call to silence? Well, it's like any other oration. You know, hear ye, hear ye. You know, if you're standing up in the forum, you need to quiet the crowd. And I mean, you know this just from, from uh, teaching Bible studies and catechism. You need to sometimes quiet the room before the, right. they're re receptive to the message. Right. There's a listen-up function of that. And it's be silent before the Lord God. There's this, this call to pay attention because God is about to speak. And a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. Sometimes we get this mistaken notion that prophets are always speaking about the future. That's not true. They can speak about the future, but prophets are really just someone who's speaking on behalf of, of the other of beyond behalf of God. And so a lot of what the prophets do don't actually predict the future, but instead offer commentary on what's happening in the world around them and making observations that carry forth the word of God into the lives of his people. In that way, a pastor on a Sunday morning does fill the function of prophet to a certain degree. A pastor should not be speaking about the future because he do, with confidence because he doesn't know what it is, but he can speak the word of God, and it may include some future speaking. So being at the end of times, in two weeks with the separation of the sheep and the goats, I will certainly talking about what will happen when the end comes. That's not because I'm predicting the future, but because I'm speaking God's word about the future and how it applies to the people that are gathered in this place. And so when Zephaniah is calling to silence before the Lord God, 
It's a recognition that God is about to speak. The authority, the creator, the one to whom you should be listening is, is preparing to speak. How is this still mimicked today in our gatherings uh, before service? Well, there, there is the intent, certainly, that when you, when you come to worship, that you take some time to focus your thoughts, you know, be still and, and, and be open to what you're about to hear. Um, in, in actual practice, I think it's a hard thing to do because you're often interacting with people right. that you meet at church. But that is the goal, is that you, you prepare yourself for, for worship by just having that period of, of introspection and, and, and silence. And we do try to assist in that by keeping the doors to the back of the sanctuary closed. So that those who are chatting are in one part of the building and those who are quiet and contemplating, preparing to hear the word of God, are in a different part of the building. So that the sanctuary is quieter, hopefully, than what the narthex would be. Um, and some, sometimes there's different approaches to this. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you or not, but this was a really um, kind of a, a pet peeve of the uh, music director at Concordian Seminary in St. Louis. When he would be playing before a service, like a call day service, and there would be several hundred people, sometimes close to a thousand people, in the, in the sanctuary or in the chapel, it would be loud. And so his first piece of pre-service music was one of the loudest pieces he would play during the day so that you could not hear the people sitting next to you any longer and it forced you to be quiet. And then the second piece he would choose would be one of the quiet pieces as he would play during the day so that now that he had your attention, you had to strain to listen to hear what was going to happen. So often it would be an a cappella choir piece, something that people would want to hear but would really have to, to focus in on that listening. And then finally with the third piece of the pre-service, he would bring you into the volume that he was going to try and keep as kind of like the average volume for the rest of the music for the rest of the service. But he was trying to force this silence onto the, to the gathering so that people would begin to prepare themselves for service. And every gathering of people is different. I've, I've noticed that particularly at weddings, that sometimes you can tell whether people, um, it's been a long time since they've seen each other, if they're really loud and chatty, um, or whether, whether they're um, mostly local people who are just kind of using this time to reflect on the, on the solemnity of the event and, 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 mm -hmm. the, and the beauty of it. And it's, it's, it's all over the place. And I've heard and, and seen in print quite a few arguments from musicians as well over what is, what is the proper role of the pre-service music. Uh, in some people's minds, it's you, you need to be silent and paying attention to it. In other people's minds, well, it's gathering music, it's kind of traveling music to kind of, kind of get people into the spirit of worship and everything in between. So where do you fall on it? I, I don't subscribe to the idea that, that everybody needs to be perfectly attentive. I'm not going to hit them over the head with, with music. You're not going to play it so loud that they can't no, speak it. No, no, like here, you must, you must listen to this piece. Um, I, I don't subscribe to that at all. Um, and, and, and the response I, I've noticed has been different on, on every Sunday, depending on the kind of piece. And, and you never know what kind of, kind of gathering of people you're going to have. So it's, 
I, I don't waste a lot of emotional energy getting exercised about it if they don't listen to every mm -hmm. note because I can't predict that anyway. I will say being the person who's in the narthex where everybody is chatting before the service starts, the pre-service music plays an incredibly important function in getting people's attention of, I need to get in there because things are about to start. And so I always appreciate that it is, it serves as a call to service as much as anything else, that it's drawing people's attention to the fact that, oh, things are changing now. And I think that we really see this, and, and I, we, you and I have talked about this, it's a, a very important part of the preparation for a funeral, that part of the way we're able to move people towards the start of a funeral is things begin to change. First, the candles get lit, then the lights are brought to full magnitude. Then I stand up here in the back and I'm fully vested. Then the organ music starts. And so you're getting these visual and audible cues of things are changing. And all of a sudden people start to move through the line faster. People will start to gather because they recognize it's about to be different. Right. And for weddings and funerals, I am much more conscious of what's happening in the room than I am on an average Sunday because uh, you can kind of predict how that's going to unfold in those, right. those cases. Right. So be silent before the Lord. Pay attention. Things are about to change. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And it's important to note there that God is the actor in this. He has prepared the sacrifice. He has consecrated, set apart his guests as the ones who are going to be receiving the sacrifice. Next, we have a reference to the king's sons, and this comes in verse 8. I will punish the officials and the king's sons. We should note that the sons here doesn't refer just to those who are princes, actual biological children, but instead can refer to all those who hold an official position in the court, and it involves anybody who would be a decision-maker or a stakeholder. And Zephaniah goes on to describe them as those who array themselves in foreign attire. This gives us an indication of what type of person he's speaking about because having the ability to purchase foreign attire is the equivalent of purchasing luxury goods. Unlike today where most of our clothes are made overseas, at the time that Zephaniah is writing, if you're wearing clothes made in another place, this is a luxury good. You paid a significant premium to be able to have this clothing. And so the king's sons, those who array themselves in foreign attire, Zephaniah says it is those who are going to be punished. Why? Well, I was going to ask you if, if, you, if in a way, this is the equivalent of what in modern times would call affluenza, oh. that those who are very affluent and... and um, prominent, uh, uh, influential, that they sometimes suffer from uh, uh, a misunderstanding of things, that they think that they're too important and, um, and, and they're missing the message. Right. Um, part of that is true, but verse 9 brings us further into that. I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. And so leaping over the threshold. An interesting turn of phrase that we don't use today, 
but kind of the idea of pushing their way to the front. They're climbers. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're pushing their way, making sure they're at the front of the line, the one that is seen, and they fill their master's house with violence and fraud. As this unfolds, we're going to see the violence and fraud is against the poor and the downtrodden. And so the fraud, they're taking advantage of people. They're using their positions to their own advantage. And so the punishment is going to come against those who exploit other people. And because we know that they're speaking in the king's court, who are giving advice to the king and to the nation that is really self-serving, that isn't guiding them towards following God's commands, but just trying to benefit themselves. Now we continue on by getting a description of a couple of different uh, locations and what's going to the destruction that's going to come upon them. The first is in verse 10 is the fish gate. Likely the fish gate is a reference to the gate on the northern side of the city because this is the place where traders would have access to come into the city of Jerusalem. The second quarter that is then mentioned likely refers to the expansion that occurred on the western side of the city. And the reason why we think it's these two is these were probably places of vulnerability. The fish gate, because there's a lot of traders, a lot of activity, a lot of things coming and going from there. And the second quarter, because it was a new build, and it was not surrounded by the height and breadth of walls that the old city had been had around it. And so it was seen as a little bit more vulnerable. And so when you hear the wailing come up from these places, the loud crash, the crying that's going to happen, it's an indication that the city is under attack and that its first line of defense is beginning to fall. And so the rest of the city is now in danger as well. And Zephaniah goes on to uh, then talk about the traitors are no more and says that the lack of traitors is going to cause people to wail. Why would you wail if there are no more traitors? Not well, traitors as in people betraying, but traitors as no, in those who are well, buying they are, it's, it's not unlike what we're seeing in, um, in, in Gaza right now, that there's no goods coming in and out. The right. people are starving. Right. It, it leads to starvation. And for those who are the affluent ones, they no longer get access to the luxury goods to which they had been uh, accustomed. So the destruction of the city is not the full extent of the prophecy. What is the full prophecy that Zephaniah is giving against God's people? They need to be prepared for, for the day of the Lord. Right. They need to be prepared. And the verse 12 is where he brings this into full focus. I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. It's an interesting description of the complacency. It's not that you don't think that God is, because we do run into this from time to time today where people say, well, if God is really a loving God or really a good God, he wouldn't actually punish anybody. Well, complacency isn't he's not going to punish. It's I don't think he's going to do anything. And what I think is really interesting about that is complacency is one of the things that John warns against in Revelation. So we look at the New Testament prophet, John, who's giving us these warnings against the people of, of God at that point in time. 
Complacency is one of those issues. Those who are neither hot nor cold, those who think the Lord will not do good nor will he do ill, he doesn't really care what we're doing. Why is it that complacency would be such a bad thing? The, the, the flaw of complacency is, is you're, just, you're not engaging, you, you don't really know what your relationship with God is. Right. Uh, you're not giving any thought or, or effort towards, towards that relationship. Complacency is dangerous because it's it precisely because it doesn't appear dangerous. If you it's harmless, yeah, right. And so, if you outright reject and actively work against what God is saying, okay, now everybody knows where you stand, and you know you can be avoided. If you are fully embracing the relationship that God has with his people and doing the best that you can to live out the life that God has described, well, now you become dangerous because you are holding the sins of the, those who have rejected God out against them, and you are doing, stu- doing things that are contrary to what the world and our sinful nature would have us do. Complacency, you're not dangerous to anyone. And that in itself becomes a danger because, well, you just kind of easy come, easy go, and that can become appealing. And so that, that danger zone there, that complacency, is one that is warned about quite frequently because it can lead to a complete falling away. Um, I think Revelation gives a great picture with the neither hot nor cold. When you're thinking about keeping food at a safe temperature, what is the danger zone? It's room temperature. It's the middle. (laughs) It's the middle. Uh, If it's really hot, it's killing the bacteria, and people know not to to eat it until it cools a little bit off because they'll burn themselves. If it's really cold, you know that it's safe because nothing can survive at that temperature. The danger zone is room temperature, complacency, lukewarm. Same thing happens with our faith. Now, after he's given this warning about complacency, he goes on to heighten the punishment that is to come. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. What is actually the punishment that's coming in 13? What he's trying to illustrate here is that that their investment is in the things of this world and is trying to draw them away from that into, into godly things. Right. It's that the investment in the things of this world will come to naught. And it's one thing to have your goods be plundered and your houses laid to waste. That means you've been attacked from, from outside. But beyond that, building houses that you will not inhabit and vineyards from which you will not drink wine means there's no future. Because you don't build a house or plant a vineyard unless you plan for a future to come. When I read this, I think about some of the old kind of gilded age mansions that were built around the country. Uh, The Payne Museum uh, in, is it Oshkosh? Oshkosh. Yeah, in Oshkosh comes to mind where these wealthy families built these massive homes almost as acts of love, oftentimes as men building them for their, for their wives, 
and they never live in them because the one they love dies before uh, they are able to move in and they're so heartbroken they can't live there without their spouse or their company goes bankrupt in the Great Depression and they lose everything. And so these huge homes, these Gilded Age homes that are absolutely breathtaking and beautiful, sit empty. They're never used for their intended purpose. They become museums because no future was had for them. And that's a heartbreaking thing to think that there was no future for that family because the things of this world didn't pan out the way that they thought they would. And this is what Zephaniah is warning. You're going to get so caught up in the things of this world that there is no future. And what's amazing is how many of those have fallen into disrepair. Just as kind of a reminder, they're so expensive to upkeep that right. the things of this world are just not destined to last. Right. And, and people today don't want them because the cost of maintaining them and bringing them up to date is just so prohibitive. And they don't function for any well for many other things. They were built to be homes, and they don't function well for a home, and they don't function well for uh, other things as well. Then the final verses of this section lead us back to the warning. At first, a visual warning followed by an audible learning uh, warning. So we get the day that is a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. That's verse 15. It's all visual. A day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. That's the audible thing. And so what are we to learn from these warnings? The, that always always be ready for the for the day and um because we don't know when the day is going to come right you just need to be ready but know that you're not going to miss it (laughs) (laughs) so so as we think about this and play to sit in the context of the end of the church here what have you chosen for us to hear about today uh, from the hymnody At this time of the year, we're often very focused on the end times. And as Pastor outlined at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of the readings do focus on end times. Um, Some people find that a little bit heavy and hard to take, multiple weeks in a row focusing on the end times. The nice thing is is we do have the the, um, relief of having a holiday, the holiday of Thanksgiving upcoming. And because there are so many hymns that I, that I come across that would be great Thanksgiving hymns, to me it's, it's hard just to pick one, the ones that go into the Thanksgiving service. So we're going to include one this coming Sunday as, a, as an opening hymn that would easily find its home in a Thanksgiving service just to kind of spread things out because there's so many that would be appropriate. And the one I, I lit upon is We Praise You, O God, which if you have a Lutheran service book, is number 785. Now, it's not in a special harvest. There's a harvest season um, section of the hymnal, but it's not placed in that position. It's placed in the stewardship uh, section of the hymnal. And what drew me to this this hymn is the tune is very familiar. I think we all know it um, as a Thanksgiving time hymn. But what always perplexed me is I knew it with two different texts to it. The one that comes to my my mind first is usually 
We gather together to, to ask the Lord's blessing. We gather together to ask the Lord's blessing. But then when I looked in the hymnal, I realized, oh, we sing it to a different text. That's not the text that we use. Right. So why are there two different texts? And why did our hymnal editors select this one? Well, I started reading uh, the history of it. First of all, um, the attraction of this hymn goes back to the tune itself. It's a very easily singable, uh, it's like, it is a folk tune, in fact. It's a folk tune from the Netherlands that probably dates to at least the 17th century, if not earlier. So it was, it was found to be a very attractive folk song, and the first words that were set to it were some that were um, uh, penned in the late 16th century um, to celebrate the the Dutch no longer being um, subject to um, Spain, the rule of Spain. So it was a political hymn. It was, okay. a, it was a hymn of victory, of freedom. So which, it was a, a Dutch independence hymn. Yeah, you could, you could, you could qualify it as, as that. And, and so the words of it were obviously very, had a lot of military imagery to it. And this was fairly widely known and then at the, um, around the turn of the century, early 20th century, um, the author of the text, um, who is very familiar with this, was asked to write a different text because of her interest in hymnody, something that would be a little bit more useful in church. They really liked the melody, but they wanted something that was a little bit more useful in church. So she was asked to write a hymn for the Thanksgiving service, and what she came up with is the one that we use in our hymnal, We Praise You, O God, which, which strips a lot of that military imagery away and really relies on the content of, of psalms, of several psalms, 107 chiefly, um, also Psalm 44 and Psalm 95, that it is our, our duty and our obligation to thank and praise God for all the gifts that we have received. This is a very common theme that run through, runs through a lot of the Psalms and perfect for that type of a use in a church service, that it, it focuses on that notion of gratitude and returning praise to God. And so uh, the author of the text, Julia P. Corey, B. Corey, wrote this text for use on that, that Thanksgiving. She wrote it at the age of, of 20. She didn't relate, write a lot of other hymns. She's not known for write, writing a lot of other hymns. So this is kind of a, a one-off, a one-hit wonder for her, that this uh, uh, text is the one that, that survives. Now, her background and the church that she and her family belonged to was the Brick Church in New York City, a very prominent Presbyterian church. And what I found very interesting is that I looked in the Presbyterian hymnals that I have on my bookshelf, and I thought, well, if they're gonna choose either of these two texts, either we gather together or we praise you, O God, they're gonna choose the one that was written by the Presbyterian a century ago. Not the case. Instead, they went back to the older text, we gather together, uh, which was a, a translation of that uh, patriotic hymn by uh, Theodore Baker, um, and, and they've continued to use that one, even though they have this really wonderful text 
based on the Psalms by a fellow Presbyterian. That is very interesting because normally church bodies will choose their own people, especially if it's a text that is well known. It's not like this is an obscure text that she has written. It is something that is, is widely known and recognized throughout Christian hymnody. What I suspect happened in this case is, is that this hymn had such a, such a foothold in those denominations that they really, they really had no interest in having a revision or an update of this text. So were you able to uncover why our hymnal chose to go with, the Ju with Julia's text as opposed to the, the traditional text? This is, this is my theory about it. Um, this hymn, We Praise You, O God, did not appear in TLH, the, the, our hymnal, the Lutheran hymnal from 1941. Did which, we gather together appear in TLH? No, no, neither of them appeared in TLH. So this was not, uh, not a hymn that was in our tradition. We may have been aware of it from hearing it in other churches. I, I, I'm certain a lot of Lutherans would say, oh yeah, we've, we've sung that for decades and decades. Well, it really wasn't true. It wasn't, it wasn't in TLH. So we were latecomers to this, this hymn. I was surprised by that. I thought it, it, it was a much older hymn and that's, that's um, uh, it was something that we had been singing for much longer, but it did not appear in TLH. It did appear in LW, the, the hymnal from 1982. So by that time, it, would, it had already been added into our, our repertoire of hymns, and it was to the, the newer text, the We Praise You, O God. And so we've just carried that forward into our current hymnal, the Lutheran Service Book. And yet, it was very quickly adopted. Sometimes mm -hmm. we get a new hymn that's put in, and it never really gains much traction. Uh, but this one, I think, is probably pretty universally known among our church bodies, or our, our churches within our church body, is that you would expect to sing this tune at some point in time during the Thanksgiving season. Yeah, it's, 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 you just, it's, it just has that feeling of, oh, it's been around forever and we've known it Right, forever. right. And so I think it's interesting that it was something that was such a part of just the cultural awareness that would have existed within the country that people already were familiar with that tune and it was easy to bring it into uh, the, the singing tradition of our congregations. Not, not a close analogy, but something similar would be Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace was not in, in the TLH hymnal either, right. but I'm sure most Lutherans knew it. Well, and probably a great example of something like that today would be uh, the old drug, is it the old rugged cross that's not in the hymnal that we sing in a lot of funerals? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's one that people know because they've encountered it other places, and so we can sing it just fine, but it is not part of our hymnal text. The name of the hymn tune is Kremser, and I, and I had no idea where that came from. And this is kind of unusual because hymn tunes are usually named for places, or often with German hymn tunes, it's the first line of the original text in German, or that, that applies to some other languages as well. But this hymn tune is named Kremser. And the reason for that is because the arranger that made the choral arrangement of this very popular, um, who was the director of the, the men's choir in Vienna, his name was Edward Kremser. 
And so when they, it came time to attach a hymn tune name to this hymn, they lit upon the name Kremser because mm. his was the, the most well-known arrangement of this Netherlands hymn tune. That is an interesting way to name that. That does not happen very often. Yeah, very, very unusual in that way. Uh, one thing about this, this hymn that is also very unusual is if you learned it in an earlier version, um, we're talking about 785 in, in Lutheran service book again, you may have learned it with a lot of these and thous in it. We praise thee, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. It's rare that you have a hymn with a lot of these and thous and thys in it, where when you change them to you and your, that you don't totally ruin the poetry. Because very often those, those words will end a line. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if the line ends with an E vowel, you're going to mess up all the poetry because you, you've messed up the rhyme scheme. What works really well for this hymn is um, th those words don't land at the end of the line, so it doesn't disturb the poetry at all. You can change it to you and your, and it, and it, it doesn't bother anybody. Uh, I didn't memorize this hymn. I didn't commit it to heart with the old language in it, so it doesn't, doesn't bother me at all to have the you and the yours in it. Um, so to me, it, it, it sings very easily and very, very comfortably with the modern language. In the Lutheran worship, when this first appeared in Lutheran hymnals, were the thee and thous already taken out? Um, that's a good question. I don't know about I don't know about LW. I did not look at the version in because LW. it would strike me that that would be part of the reason it sounds so natural to us to sing the yous and the yours is because if the first appearance in the hymnal is with the updated personal pronouns or second person pronouns, then that is just the way we know the song. True. Um, and because, yeah, it didn't appear in uh, TLH, which would have retained that type of language. LW did a lot of purging of, of these and thys. And so um, off the top of my head, if I had to guess, I would say they were already gone by that point because they had, they had messed with a lot of hymns um, things like, uh, uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, that one they change to you. Well, there's a great example of, right. if it's the final word, you're, you're going to ruin the poetry. Um, so why don't we sing, um, just because I think it's an interesting contrast to compare these two texts, why don't we sing stanza one of both? So okay. we'll start with the older one, we gather together, and you'll, you'll hear a little bit of the military, military imagery coming through there. Um, there was mention of battle in here somewhere, but I don't, I don't remember where, where that was. Um, uh, the third line of the second stanza, so, that, so from the beginning, the fight we were winning. The fight we were winning, yes, stanza two. Actually, we should probably sing stanza two of both of these hymns. Because in stanza two, um, in stanza two of the one that we actually have in the hymn, one interesting change that they made was in the very last line, your help, O Lord, our struggles we win, is what we have in the hymnal. Originally, that said battles. Oh. So there was a, a remnant of that military imagery right there. So um, we'll sing stanzas, stanza two of both of these hymnals, or hymns. Okay. 
Uh, are we going to take it up a step when we move into the? Because oh. <laughs> they are well, keyed in different. They uh, are. They, they are in different keys, and and um, I. That's also worth noting because it does go quite high up in the vocal range if you if you sing it in the original key. Most hymnals have dropped it into the lower key. But ours keeps but it ours in the original key. Because there's only only one one very small high note there. They thought, well, we'll be able to manage that. And it's really not that high because we've talked about before right. that most vocal ranges can live in the key of D pretty easily. Right. And this is just one step above that. It exceeds so. it, yeah, by just a small amount on just one note. And, and the, the vast majority of the tune lays in a pretty comfortable range. Beside us to guide us, our God with us joining, ordaining, maintaining his kingdom divine. So from the beginning the fight we were winning, the Lord was at our side, all glory be thine. We worship you, God of our fathers, we bless you. Through trial and tempest, our guide you have been. When perils overtake us, you will not forsake us. And with your help, O Lord, our struggles we win. Let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.